0: If you would this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. And we're going to uh, hear really the same story today, but from Luke's perspective. We've already read it uh, in Mark, and this is the Transfiguration. Uh, Today is, is what we call Transfiguration Sunday, and it's where we remember, obviously, Jesus ascending that mountain and being transfigured before three of His disciples. So, if you'll, if you'll look here in uh, Luke chapter 9, go down to verse 28 and we'll start reading there. Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with Him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him and as the men were parting from him peter said to jesus master it is good that we are here let us make 3 tents one for you and one for moses and one for elijah not knowing what he said not knowing what he said as he was saying these things a cloud came and overshadowed them And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your holy word. We pray that You would bless now the preaching of this passage and give us ears to hear and a will to respond to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Journeys are all over the place. People have their own personal journeys. They have what we call spiritual journeys. Uh, every movie, every book, really every song has a journey that it takes you through. There are movements within everything that we say that ultimately lead us onto the fact that yeah, we're we're all a part of some journey, some kind of path, uh, some kind of as I told the kids, great adventure. And ultimately, these things are are you know fun at times. These things are bad at times. And so you have both, again, the good and the bad, and sometimes the ugly, that happens on these, these journeys. You know, when, when maybe you were uh, just, you know, establishing yourself in the world, you took a road trip, where you're without your parents, you know, you, you don't have the, the safety net there, and you, and you go out with a bunch of college people, or buddies, whatever, and you go on some road trip, and, you know... It's, maybe it's an adventure you remember. Uh, maybe not. Um, some of, all of us can probably point to certain adventures that didn't really lead to good things. So other adventures that led to great things. And the reality is that all throughout the Bible, the Bible is carrying us on a journey. Um, really, in the Bible, it's telling the ultimate story that defines every other story ever told. So it gives us really the outline the Bible does for every other story that can be told, that will be told. So if you have a favorite movie or a favorite book, uh, a favorite story, then this story here defines all those stories. It makes sense of everything else that's ever happened. And what I mean is every story, every journey, has the same sort of uh, sort of outline, if you will. And that is, you have the setup. You know, where you're creating the scene. I mean, if you start telling a story, you have to tell people, you know, they were so and so here and they were, you know, many years ago or or whatever it might be. You have to set it up. You've got to create that scene. And even in in, uh, movies, this is the same way they start. They start creating the scene. They set it up. And then the next thing that happens is there's some type of upset or else the story gets very boring very quickly. There's some problem that comes into play. Uh, there is there's some kind of fall from where you need to be. And ultimately, then, the third part of the story has to be, of course, the redemption. The part where things are put back together. And so, just like Lord of the Rings begins just with uh, really, you know, Bilbo leaving his front door. Um, and it sets in play a series of events that leads to, ultimately, four books um, you know, including The Hobbit where it all uh, sort of begins and you, know, you have this entire story that's created all because one person took a journey because one person you know, decided to step out of their house and stop living where they had been living for a time to take a journey and you know, I can't help but hear the call of scripture the call of Jesus himself to us to take a journey with him to go on a great adventure. Um, and for many people, this is very taxing. This is very scary. This is very unsettling. As I, as I prepared this this week, I thought about, thought about this fact you know, why is it that older people have a tougher time, you know, converting to Jesus Christ and his way? You know, we, we know statistically that. Um, if, if you are not introduced to Jesus by the time you get out of high school, the percentages go way, way, way down to converting to Jesus Christ. To all of a sudden having a radical conversion. Now, I got to think, why is... You know, and I, I think it's this. This would be my proposal. It's not scientific data or anything of this nature. I haven't polled anybody, but it's just my two cents on the matter. And that is, I think... Once you get established, once you start moving through your late 20s into your 30s, into your 40s, you're accumulating so much stuff, you've built up this kingdom of yours, it's hard to leave it. And the more stuff, the more input you have into that kingdom, into that tower you're building, think Tower of Babel, the harder it is to leave. The harder it is to leave all that stuff behind that you've done. And you know, with, with a teenager, Right? Even with a college-age person, there's just not a whole lot built up. And so it's easier to say yes and go on some adventure, whereas for us that are older, it's more difficult because we have built up a kingdom of our own. And I I think that has to factor into why it is that it's more difficult for people to say yes to Jesus and do something new. To actually exercise faith. And yet... You know, in the Bible, one of the greatest journeys, one of the first steps, really the Bilbo Baggins of the Bible, is Abraham. Isn't it? And he gets called in his 80s. You think about building a kingdom for yourself, having a life already created, he's in his 80s and God says, okay, I want to give you some things, but you got to leave. You've got to trust me and really blindly go where I tell you. In other words, I have a land for you, but you can't see it yet. You know, you're know, you not going to be able to plug it into the GPS and look it up. You're not going to be able to locate it on Google Maps. But I have a land for you, and I want to push you in that direction, but you've got to leave where you are, which is, he was in Ur. You are. Some people say Ur. Er, Ur. Um, that's probably a southern way of saying it, but, but it's probably more Ur uh, is how we, you really want to pronounce that. That was really a very technologically advanced place. I mean, that would have been like New York City in our day. Um, because this is where the Sumerians came from. The very first civilization ever to break out in history comes from this region. This is Kuwait we're talking about. This is Iraq, the southern part. And this is where Abraham's from. And he's told to leave that place, leave his security, leave you know, his family, and go where God tells him to go, to a land that God will show him, not Abraham will show. And so here's a man in his 80s that steps out. Again, much like maybe, maybe Tolkien is actually trying to say something to us by the old Bilbo Baggins stepping out on some journey. And you know, maybe you are finding yourself set in your ways... And as you get older, it seems to be become more concrete. You know, you young, you're more fluid. Older, it's more concrete. You know, it doesn't have to be. Apparently, we can still step out on faith even in our 80s, even in our 90s. Remember, he doesn't even have a kid until he's almost 100. So the promise was given to him in his 80s, not fulfilled until his mid 90s. He wait. I mean, you talk about. Being on a timeline, I mean, some of you are thinking, man, I've been waiting a long time for certain things to happen in my life. Well, here's a guy in his 80s, he tries to wait over 10 years. You know he's thinking the biological clock's way far gone at this point. Not only Abraham, but others throughout the Bible step out on faith to go on an adventure with God. Think of Jacob. Jacob who is constantly trying to deceive people and ultimately he gets deceived he then tries to deceive God which doesn't work out very well and wrestles with God and some of us need that don't we some of us are not Abraham's instead we're more like Jacob we have to wrestle with certain things but listen be like Jacob if you're going to wrestle and say I'm not going to release you until you bless me I'm not going to let this pass keep at it don't stop Again, Jacob. you got Joseph. I mean, what an amazing story Joseph is. And we can sit here and talk about it for the next 15 minutes. A beautiful story of both, again, a great kid from a great family. You've got the setup. You've got the upset, which is he's sold into slavery. Then he even works his way up in prison. And then he, something else happens to him. It's, he's on and on and on. Potiphar's house to prison to finally second in command of Egypt. Redemption. And the list goes on. Moses, Joshua, David, the kings of the north and south, uh, the prophets, Jesus, the disciples, Paul. Are not Paul's journeys told to us in Acts? He's on an adventure with God. He doesn't always know where he's going to be. He says, look, I, I'm in prison one day, next day I'm out to sea, you know, trying to swim to stay alive. He didn't know always what was going to happen. And I know that in, in, in this Huntsville area, we have you know, more engineer-minded people who like to plan out on Excel spreadsheets exactly what's going to happen. But you know what? In God's story, that's not always possible. It's a walk of faith. Not that you don't do that sort of stuff. There are people who plan. Uh, in the, David was a planner. And yet he was also spontaneous. Um, So there has to be, again, this balance that we've been talking about this morning to our lives. And that is, we cannot find ourselves in one of the extremes. If you're living a Christian life and you know everything that's coming down the line for you, then you're not living by faith. You're not sacrificing parts of your life. You know, if your giving is very comfortable to you, it doesn't hurt you, then you're not giving sacrificially. You may be easily giving 10%. But Jesus doesn't call us just to give 10%. That's Old Testament. He calls us to give sacrificially. That's different. You know, a journey is going to cost you something. You know, if you know the story of the Hobbit, again, you know that he actually thinks about it. On, he sleeps on it, right? You know, next morning he wakes up and he's, he's unsure still, and he goes after it anyway. And, uh, and, and it's just, again... I think Tolkien's done us a good job of showing us how our lives work. It's going to cost you something to go on a journey. To leave your house, to step out on faith, it has to cost you something. It cost Jesus something, didn't it? And He was the premier human. The paragon of what it means to be human. And in the story of the transfiguration, we're at a very interesting point in His journey. Peter... In all three of the Gospels that recount the Transfiguration, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three accounts, it's always preceded by the confession of Peter. Remember what Jesus asked them? He says, Who do people say that I am? And they list off some things that they've heard people say. Then He turns to them and says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are... The Christ. What he was saying is you are the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. After that confession, Jesus is as far north, if you're looking at a map, He's as far north as He'll ever go. He's in Caesarea Philippi, which is a pagan land. He's as far away from Jerusalem as He'll get. And after that confession, He turns His face southward to go to Jerusalem. And so his mission is no longer moving north, but now moves directly south. And he fixes his face on Jerusalem. He'll then predict his death and suffering three different times before he gets to Jerusalem. We also begin to see a more private side to his life. Beforehand, you normally see a very public side. Now we get a lot of private issues with his disciples. In particular, three of his disciples. So he actually sort of discriminates against the other 12 to get these three to get some specific events happen. And he tells them some specific things he doesn't tell the others. This is one of these events. Peter, James, and John are invited into, uh, onto the mountain with Jesus. And as he is praying... And don't you, love, don't you love the realism of the Gospels? I do, for one, because it gives me hope. Um, because if you ever prayed and fallen asleep then you're right here with the disciples because apparently Jesus was praying and was it say they were heavy with sleep but when they became fully awake so you know when he was praying they're they're sitting here doing this number where you know they probably they see one of him then they see two of him then they see four of him and then all of a sudden they realize something else is going on you know I see this kind of look on the faces of my students at 8:30 in the morning, sometimes uh, I ask them. Sometimes, you know, hey, I tell them afterwards. I say, hey, thanks for praying for me uh, during the uh, <laughs> during during the lecture. Um, here, are the disciples we've seen them. We will also see them not only fall asleep here, almost praying, but also in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asks them, pray with me for one hour, and they're not able to do that. They fall asleep, and so you know, I love those little. Those little places in the Bible, because it gives me hope that, hey, you know what? Uh, We have room to grow, but that's okay. It's part of the journey that we'll take. Um, We do need to get to the place where we can pray with Jesus an hour, but maybe some of you are not there yet. Neither were the disciples. But I think they got there after the day of Pentecost. And so we're moving in that direction. In this story, some really fascinating things happen, and you know it probably well Jesus praying, and as He's praying, His face turns white and like light. His, his clothes, we're told in the other Gospel accounts, become whiter than you could ever bleach anything. Um, here, Luke's detailed analysis, again, he's a physician, so he gets kind of detailed more so than the other Gospel writers. He tells us it was dazzling white, um, which is a unique description here. And as He is transfigured before them... Uh, they see him talking to two individuals. And they're said to be talking in glory, which I don't know if they're coming from the sky or what, um, but they're there and it's Elijah and it's Moses. Uh, Of course, Moses would have represented the law and Elijah the prophets. And so you really have, if you will, the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament being represented here in two Figures, namely Moses and Elijah. And they're talking to Jesus. Now this would have been you know very encouraging on many accounts, one of them being this Elijah was actually taken without death. And Moses died, but yet now is here. So there's really hope on both sides of that, uh, of that plane, which is exactly what the same hope that Paul will give us later, right? And he says, look, it doesn't matter if you fall asleep first i.e. die, or if you're still awake when Jesus comes, we're all going up. We're all going to the same place. So whether you live or you're dead, either way, we're going to the same place if you know Jesus. So it also, when He transfigures before them, He is encouraging them. He's taking them on this mountain and encouraging them because ultimately right after He gets done with this, He will again tell them, guys, I have to go to Jerusalem and I am going to suffer and die there. And of course, you know, it's like if you've ever talked to a philosopher before, maybe you took philosophy in college, you go ask them a question and they start talking about stuff and you really don't understand what they're saying, but you you feel like it's right, you know, you just say, yeah, okay. You kind of give that nod of, yeah, 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 right on. But you really don't understand what's. I think that when Jesus is predicting His death and His suffering to. I think they're kind of saying, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we got it. But they really don't have it, do they? Because they are just simply bewildered in the accounts when it actually happens. They, they have, it's like they're blindsided completely when He dies, when He suffers. They did not see it coming even though He clearly predicted it three different times in the Gospel accounts. You see... Ultimately, what we have in the story of the Bible really coming to its climax here with the transfiguration and then Jesus being transfigured on His suffering and death is, is what uh, you know, Milton is able to kind of get with paradise, paradise lost, paradise regained. It's really, again, this set up in creation, this upset in the fall, And this reset in redemption. This is how all stories will follow subsequently. Because this is the one story, God's story, that defines all storytelling. He is the great storyteller, isn't He? I mean, a story that had nothing that was the problem would really be an okay story, but not one very interesting. One that only had bad stuff and the bad one really doesn't make sense to us. Any, any movie that I've ever seen where, where bad, one, it's, it's really not a movie I want to rewatch. Why is that? It's not just me. It's, not, it's the critics as well. Why? Because that's not how you tell a story. There has to be something redemptive, something sacrificial. Why? Because this is the story that defines all stories. Amen. If you want to be a good writer, then you must write according to this script. And this is where all good stories are told. This is how good stories are told. Because this truly is the greatest story ever told. The greatest journey ever taken. And He invites us on that journey. It all begins with a step of faith. And you say, well, I, I like to really see things before I can agree to those terms. And I understand that. Uh, many parts of life, you don't want to agree to things unless you are able to see the money. Unless you are able to see what's going to happen. But in relationships, that's not always possible, is it? You notice that? I know you celebrated your valentine yesterday, maybe. Your love. But ultimately, you ever notice how persons are not predictable? So you make these contracts of marriage, and yet people are not predictable. People aren't controllable like contracts like video games or our phones they're not like that G.K. Chesterton once said there are two things in life that never get boring stories and persons because stories are about people that's why stories don't get boring and people definitely don't get boring and we've all been probably guilty of watching people when we go to the mall They're just interesting. They just do weird things. They dress odd. They look weird sometimes. And we can't help but kind of catch a glance. But we also see in that weirdness and in that oddity. We see our own weirdness, don't we? Our own oddities. (laughs) Dr. Seuss has a little piece that I read yesterday about love. And what he talks about is when two, you know, you're weird... They're weird, and so when your weirdness matches, that's what love is. Is ultimately what he says, and, and, and I can't help but kind of agree with him. You know, we're all kind of quirky and weird and got our own little things that even we find odd sometimes, you know? I mean, even we don't like our own company sometimes, uh, which, which can be healthy, actually. And so, we're all on God's story. We're all actually on a path. On a journey. And the question becomes this. Is the path we're on costing us something? Is the path that we're on leading to love? Because Jesus' way is the way of love. You know that, but it's not cheap love. It's not cheap grace. It's grace that costs something. It's love that cost something. You know, all the good things in life, I've come to the realization... All good things in life actually are going to cost you something. You know, if I, you know, if, again, if I, if I tell you that on a video game I ran a 5K in, you know, 26 minutes, you'd be like, oh, cool, all right, weirdo. <laughs> if I told you I did it in real life yesterday, then it means a little something more. Why? Because it cost me a little bit more, instead of tapping my thumbs, to actually get out there and tap my feet for 3.1 miles. That's a little painful, Uh, especially when I'm trying to beat my other record. It's a little more painful than, and it costs you something more. And, and, And if you just think about your life, the things that mean something to you cost you something. It's not the cheap stuff that we remember. It's the costly things. It's the conversations with people in our life that we love, that have borne us, our own mother, our own father, our grandparents. You know, people that we're connected with. The work that you have. The vocation that you've been called for. These things cost something. Marriage. Family. These things cost something. You know, my kids are very valuable to me because, well, they cost me. Not just financially. My time. Um, They cost my life, my hair. Turning gray, I think, is due partly to them sometimes. Sometimes. Maybe do other things. And we joke about these things, but they cost something. They mean something to us. And all the valuable stuff is costly. And you know what? Jesus pays the ultimate price. He pays the ultimate cost, which is His own death. You say, well, I've had people die for me before. Yeah, but you've not had God die. That's the difference. When Jesus dies, God is the one doing that. That's a whole different ball game than a soldier dying for you. Again, that's great. And Jesus says, you know, we hear Him saying, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for a friend. But when He does it, there's something redemptive about it. In other words, there's something in His death that can change all of death. He is the representative of the whole human race. And so when He dies, it's like when Adam fell. So, Paul, set, Paul sets this up. It's not me who's doing this theology. Paul says, look, in Adam, all died. All fall in Adam, but all are made alive in Christ. So, in the same way that Adam affects all people through his headship as the human race, Adam meaning mankind, Jesus also affects all people because of his headship, because he's God who became man. And he lived a sinless life and suffered and died for us and resurrected so that we might have life. The disciples on the mountain of transfiguration are getting a little picture of that. So before He actually goes and suffers and dies and they start scattering, Jesus kind of peels back the layers to show who He really is. And it's meant for their encouragement. There's only three of them that see it. And notice in every one of the accounts it says the same thing, and that is, they told nobody about this until after he rose from the dead. Now, have you ever noticed how in Mark in particular and some of the other gospel places Jesus will heal somebody and say, Don't tell anyone what I've done? And some people say, Oh, he's just trying to use reverse psychology to get people to t- No, he's not. He's not trying to do that. He's not playing the game. Jesus wasn't known for playing games like we play. Uh, instead, I think what you have is they still don't really know who He is. So for them to go out there proclaiming, acting like they know who He is, they're actually going to speak wrongly about the Messiah. They still think He's coming to take over Rome. They'll find out very soon that actually He's killed by Rome. That's the greatest blow in their mind imaginable. And yet, it's the greatest thing in the world for us because of what He did. He submitted Himself to death. He could have called in the Calvary. He could have did whatever He wanted to to get out of that situation. He did not. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to suffer and die. Now as we come upon Lent, just three days away of starting Lent, we too must pick up our cross. This is where all this is leading this morning. Yes, we've had these glimmers of hope, You know this beautiful picture of Jesus, but what He calls them to is to suffer. And so I'm saying to you, if, if in your life, everything's going great and there is no suffering, you know, you're doing your little, you're checking off the list, whatever, make it sacrificial. If your giving is just standard, then okay, you know, make it sacrificial. I don't mean just money, just as Jack said earlier in his prayer. When God calls us to give, He's talking about ourself as well. Not just our money, but all of our resources. Our home. Open your home up. Open your, your, make your vocation a ministry. Every single week, you can minister to those you're around. That's what we're called to do. Jesus' ministry, before He ever started was baptized and had a public ministry, was carpentry work. Paul, tent maker. And yet, these were ministries for them. And so too, they are for us. Whoever we're around, we're called to love them. Love your neighbor as yourself. The way is narrow. It's not broad, but that narrow way is the cross. The way of life, the way to life, is the way of the cross. And so, Peter's confession turns Jesus' face to the cross, and it must turn our face there as well. And if we're going to go God's way, then we must pick up our cross. Count the cost and bear that in love. Yes, there'll be work involved. Yes, there'll be toil. Yes, there'll be suffering. But you know what? He can redeem that all because He's already done it. He's already forged the path for us. He's already taken the adventure. He knows how the ride works. He's the one who designed it. We can trust Him as a guide. We can trust Him as our Father. We can trust Him as our brother. We can trust Him as the very one who's in us, encouraging us in the Holy Spirit. So, just as Lent acts as a type of spring cleaning, let's get started. Now, don't delay. Now is the day to take a step of faith. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe maybe for you, you've never actually really stepped out on faith and believed God you've done your calculations, you, you've looked at it, it seems reasonable, but you've never really said yes to God. Maybe He's calling you something new. I mean, for some of you, you know, maybe you're so set in your ways, but, but He's actually calling you to do something new. I, I don't know. I'm not a seer. But if the Holy Spirit is say whatever He's saying to you today, please do not grieve Him. Do not quench what He's saying. What He's saying is for you. It's not for me. It's not for the person next to you. It's for you. You need to respond to that word. Make that step of faith. Take that journey with Him. You will never regret it. He can keep you safe. He can lead you ultimately to the ultimate prize, which is Himself. We've all been created for Him. We've all experienced this fallen nature. But now what He wants us to experience in its fullness is His redemption. Do you know that redemption? You can. It's good news. It's the best news in all the world. It's how all good stories end is with something being redeemed. Someone being redeemed. And I pray... That's how your story ends. Amen.